Today we start a five-sermon uh, series on kind of the whole big picture, right? What is it that God is about in the world? What's the whole focus of human history? What's the whole focus of the Bible? It's one of those grand things, and we're going to get really practical. I do want to let you know that today you need to buckle up. So let me give you a couple of strategies first. We're not going to cover nearly what would be good to cover, and yet it's going to be a lot. So here's several things to do. One is, if you don't already get our uh, life group questions and summaries, you can reach out to Kyle through our church website, and he can make sure that for this series you get those things, because there's good summary, good questions that will help you process it. Secondly, all of our sermons are posted online, either through our socials or our, our website, so you can always revisit anything that you need to. Uh, thirdly, if you'd like to take notes, let me give you a few words right now that you can keep in front of you as we go through this morning in a minute, and they will become clear, but here are the words that you need to have in mind. Rule, presence. C-E, not T-S, right? It's not Christmas time yet. Presence. And with presence, relational, empowering, right? So presence. The next one is purpose, purpose, missional and moral. And the final word is peace, peace, enjoyed and extended. So hopefully that'll all become clear in just a minute. If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 4? And I want to get us kind of launched into this by asking a question of ourselves and um, taking it seriously. But to, to get there, I want, to, I want to just remind us of how easy it is to overlook, to ignore, to blow past things that matter, that we should pay good attention to. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm sure you've had experience where you have ignored good advice. Uh, I am well more towards the prudent end of the spectrum than to the impetuous end of the spectrum uh, compared to most people that I know, and yet still there's been more than a few times where it's like, I should have listened. Oops. Um, and in fact, you may even have particular voices in your life that are that voice of wisdom that are helpful, and when you listen, it's great, and sometimes you don't listen as well, and it, yeah, it doesn't always work out well. My wife's one of those voices in my life, and she's been that way since before we were married, actually. We were friends, and she, she will sometimes ask a question or say something that I, I know I should listen to, but for whatever reason, I don't, and then I go, oops, should have listened. Like uh, years ago, we were out, it was her and me and a friend of ours, and it was um, late at night, it was a snowy, cold night, and we were 25 miles north of town, there was this place we were going to, it was all for good purposes, but we're out in the middle of the forest, and the highway is clear, but there's snow everywhere else, and we've got to pull off the highway, and I'm thinking, I can't stand the highway, and she looks over there and says, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't go in there, and I'm not a problem, drive in about 20 feet, and buried the car. I found out my Firebird wasn't actually a Jeep. Three days later, came back and dug it out. Oops, I should have listened. Right, and, and 
2020 hindsight, but in the moment, it seemed like a good thing to do. When we were dating, actually when we were engaged, uh, we were going to a Bible college, and uh, it was this early in the semester, we were all out on an outing, we were going to go hiking, and um, me and my roommates, there were six of us in a two-bedroom apartment with one bathroom, that's the way it was set up. Uh, So we were there, and she was there, and a number of other people were there. We were hiking. It was beautiful. Nobody brought water. We're thirsty. And there's this amazingly crystal clear, fast-flowing stream right there. And we're all saying, this is not a problem. And she suggests, perhaps it is a problem. And I think, no, it's fast and flowing, and look how clean it is. By the way, did I tell you that there were six guys in one apartment with one bathroom? Oops. I I should have listened. Right, and, and uh, we got married, had kids, and um, you know, like most dads, I loved playing with the kids, and I played a little bit more rambunctiously than Davette did, and like most moms, she was fine with that, but she would occasionally remind me to be careful. And um, one of my favorite things to do, our first daughter, um, Amanda, when she was born, I used to like to hang her upside down. You know how they're, they're so tiny, so you can fit their feet right in there, and do this, right? And, and she loved it. Her mouth would fall open. She'd laugh and giggle and whatever. And so I was doing this on a hot summer day when the ceiling fan was going. And um, we go up once, ha, 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 go up twice, ha, 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 go up the third time, Oops, right? I, sh- I should have listened. I should have listened. Now, all of those things, bruised heels heal, and uh, 48 hours of misery with my roommates is long past. Some things are a little harder to get over. We were going on a trip one time, and I was going to help us do it real cheaply, and David was, you know, be careful how you do this. You know, with Expedia, you can make all these reservations, and then you can cancel them. So I'm working these different itineraries, and, and she left it to me, but just be careful how you do it. And uh, so I set up these different folders so that we had these different itineraries. I could cancel the, the, the reservations, because if you do that four, uh, 24 hours in advance, you don't pay anything, right? We went on a vacation and got back, and the credit card bill was super expensive, and I had overlooked one of the folders, and all of those reservations wanted their money. Oops. Should have listened. Right? International travel, I hate packing clothes in my carry-on. My clothes are big. My carry-on is small. That's why I have luggage with me. Why would I do that? David always reminds me, why don't you put something in your bag just in case? It'll be fine. Went to Cambodia, and my bag went to China. And in the country where the average person's got to be like five foot four and 130 pounds, it is not easy to find clothing for this body. When I got home, back to the States, I walked in the door and my wife and two daughters just burst out laughing because the shirt I bought made me look like a bloated, overgrown bumblebee. And it immediately left the house, never to be seen again. Then a few years later, I'm going on another missions trip with a bunch of pastors to Africa, and I'm reminded, hey, pack some things in your carry-on. Remember Cambodia. Yeah, it's going to be fine. I wound up in Nairobi, and my bags were still in New Jersey. Now, it was more touristy, so there were clothes my size. I say, they all look like something out of a 1950s British kind of show. It was very pith helmets and all, you know, what? I looked ridiculous. When I walked out, all touristy, all the other pastors just started laughing at me. Oh, you take this thing really seriously. When I got home, those clothes disappeared too. Oops, I should have listened. Right now, 
I'm not particularly reckless. I'm actually pretty prudent. And I still can tell you stories. And some of them don't make me smile still to this day. Some of them are just kind of regrets. Now, you may be one who presses the boundaries a little bit more, and you could probably top my stories by a lot. And you might have us, instead of uh, smiling, you might have us in tears. But we all understand that there are times and there are places when we should hear things that we, for whatever reason, don't seem to hear them. Or we blow past them. Or intentionally or not, we wind up ignoring them. And we may regret that. When it comes to a few hours of discomfort or bruised heels or even some goofy clothes, we can get past that. But there are some things that are more significant. And when it comes to following Jesus, actually some of those things are eternal. So the question I want us to wrestle with this morning and ask very personally is, are we ignoring Jesus? Are we ignoring Jesus? Now, I know right off the bat the answer is obviously no, or we wouldn't be in this room, we wouldn't be online, we wouldn't care. But I'm asking a little bit more nuanced question than that. Of course we're not ignoring Jesus, that's why we're here. But isn't it true in your life, it is in mine sometimes, that I have all of these expectations, all of these desires, all of these perceptions, all of these um, things that I bring with me when I come to talk to Jesus. So that sometimes it's actually hard for him to get a word in edgewise. Because I've got my questions and my needs and my concerns and this is what I want, this is what I expect. And even when I ask what he wants to talk about, it's filtered through the stuff I'm already thinking. And what I'm asking is that we would back up from that and just let Jesus talk. If you could just sit with Jesus and say, what is it that you want to talk about? If you could just sit with him and say, what is it that really matters to you? What's important? What would he say? If you asked a random collection of gospel scholars, what was Jesus all about? What was important to him? What did he talk about? What did his ministry focus on? Wouldn't matter where they came from, you'd get a very consistent answer. They're in agreement, actually. If you were to look at the Gospels afresh with this question in mind and you really worked at making sure you don't smuggle in your own preconceptions, it would jump off the page at you. Because what Jesus really cared about, what he talked about, what was in fact his mission and his worldview. Here's what I'm after. Here's how I perceive the world and respond to it. Was right there. But I have to tell you, it really didn't register with me for decades. And once it did, it is one of the two or three most transformative things that have happened in my spiritual journey. Let that sink in, because that's really true. One of the two or three most transformative things in my personal spiritual journey was actually hearing what Jesus said, actually beginning to wrestle with that and understand that that actually will shape 168 hours of my week, 52 weeks out of the year, everything fits with that. And that's what we find when we come to Matthew chapter 4. So hopefully you have your Bible open there and glasses. I need my glasses to find my glasses. 
There we go. Uh, we're going to look at just a couple of verses. This is where we pick up some speed because I want to give us a big picture. So hang on and we'll be good. At the end, we'll ask some very practical questions, and then from this, we'll launch into some very practical things over the next several weeks. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He's been baptized. He's just beginning his ministry, and Matthew lays this out as if this is the banner over everything. This is Jesus' ministry. This is his teaching. This is what he's about, and it says this, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The next few verses, he calls his first disciples, and then the next verse after that, he recaptures this theme, verse 23. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. When we come to Jesus and we listen to what he wants to talk about, what's really on his heart, we look at what he was about, what he taught, what all his miracles pointed to, why he came, what got him up, if you will, in the morning, what his worldview was, what his mission was, and what he passed on to his disciples, it's captured in this little phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, it, it, it's absolutely imperative that you and I would have a solid working understanding of what does that mean because that will shape everything. The kingdom of God is at the heart of it. And we can look, we won't take the time, but I'll just remind you because it's fairly familiar in Matthew over and over again. The first sermon Jesus preaches is the Sermon on the Mount, which starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's these eight attributes of citizens of the kingdom. And he says, this is who my people are. The whole sermon focuses on that and correcting their misunderstanding and focusing on what that really means. A little bit later on, he says, if you want to know how to pray, here's how you should pray. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A little bit later after that, he says, you want to know how to live? Here's how you should live. Seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness, these other things will be added to you. Later on, he says, and by the way, not everyone who thinks they're part of the group actually gets it and is fully in. Some people are trying to have some sort of transactional relationship with God, which isn't a relationship, actually. It needs to be deeper than that. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, right? Well, we did all these great things. I never knew you. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. Matthew unfolds again and again. He'll talk about it, chapter 13. He corrects a lot of things. Have you ever wondered why in the Gospels, Jesus will sometimes work a miracle? Jesus has come to say, here I am, the unique representative of God. The access to God is through me. Here's the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he does something that overwhelmingly points to that reality, and he says, shh, don't tell anyone. Have you ever noticed those passages? That seems so odd. It's because of this. Jesus has come as the crown prince because of the kingdom of God. But everyone he's talking to is already excited about the kingdom of God. They just have the wrong view of it. And he doesn't want this PR disaster where it gets out, oh, the king is here, the, the, the kingdom's come, and, and everyone's got their own idea, and they run amok. So he's got to teach them first. Matthew 13 
teaches a lot of things. It's not like this, it's like this, and it's counterintuitive. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's, it's like these different things that you wouldn't expect, the dragnet, and here's how it unfolds. That's the kingdom of God. The last sermon Jesus preaches in Matthew 24, 25 is all about as we wait for the ultimate expression, the final expression of the kingdom, how are we supposed to live as kingdom citizens? As he's talking to people and they're upset because children are coming to him, he says, no, let the children come to me. Theirs is the kingdom. And in Luke and Mark, it clarifies for us, by the way, the kingdom, you receive the kingdom when you become like them. He's talking to his opponents. They're all over him. And he says, look, the kingdom of God has come among you because I'm here, and I'm here to plunder the wicked one's realm. He talks to his closest followers, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, right? This is the church that I'm building, and the stewardship that you have in this world is this gospel of the kingdom that you will share. You get to participate in this agenda that I've got. And then he ends the book of Matthew by saying, go make disciples, everyone, everywhere, all kinds of people, every ethnic group, baptize, teach. But he starts that by saying, all authority is mine. From start to finish, it's about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus focuses on. That's his worldview. That's his mission. Matthew makes it super obvious but you can't miss it in Mark or Luke either because it shows up all over the place. John's a little different, might say, well, maybe that's the exception. No, read carefully, especially John chapter three. There's a shift in the language used to talk about the same reality. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom. And John is speaking in terms of things like eternal life and born again, but he's talking about the same reality, the dynamics of living in the kingdom of God. The book of Acts, the baton pass is handed off. The book of Acts starts talking about the kingdom and it ends talking about the kingdom, which is a, a, a rhetorical device used to say everything in here connects with this somehow, right? The opening verses, the apostles are asking the question, is it now that you're gonna set the kingdom here for Israel? He says, that's not your concern, right? When God does that, that's his business. Here's your job right now. It ends. Paul's in prison, and people are coming to him in Rome, and he's receiving freely everyone who comes to him, talking freely of the kingdom of God. In fact, in the middle, Paul, before he goes to prison, he's talking to some of his disciples who are now leading the church in Ephesus, and he's not going to see them anymore, and everyone's kind of heavy-hearted, but he's, he's passionate. And here's what he says. I don't account my life of any value, right? He's going to Jerusalem and he knows it's going to be hard. I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I live or die on. And then he expands on that in the next verse. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom We'll see my face again. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? It's the rule of God. Right? It's the rule of God. It is simplest understanding. It's the rule of God. We're going to flesh that out in a minute, but I want you to have that in mind. And that's why this is such a practical thing. You know, as we look at all of human history, from start to finish, every breath of every person is part of that story. When Adam and Eve draw their breath, that story 
begins amongst humanity. And it will continue until the ultimate glorification at the end of time. Every moment of history is encompassed there and all of the word of God. It starts in the story in Genesis and it finishes in Revelation. And the verse that really points that out is is well known to us, not because we've read that text so many times, but because we've heard the song from the Messiah. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's the climax of everything. That's the story. All of human history and all of the scripture, it's the central axis. I can understand everything in scripture through this lens, and I'm supposed to. Now, let me just stop for a second here and acknowledge, assert, actually, there are more than one comprehensive lens to look at scripture through. There's not 10. There's not 50, but there are several. And they all are so deeply intertwined, I'm convinced they actually all talk about exactly the same reality, just through slightly different windows. So you can talk about all of Scripture and human history through the lens of the glory of God, for instance, and that's legitimate. You can talk about all of Scripture and human history through the the lens of the story of redemption, and that's legitimate. You can talk about all of human history and Scripture through the lens of the relational presence of God among his people, and that's legitimate. Or you can talk about all of human history and Scripture through the lens of the kingdom of God. That's legitimate. Those are all deeply intertwined. They're all talking about the same thing from slightly different angles. We're going to look at it through the lens of the kingdom for two reasons. One. I am convinced that once we get past our intuitive disconnect, like as Americans, we think of kingdom and we go, well, the queen died. Charles is the king. They wore funny clothes. It's kind of cool. I don't know what it means. Right? So we're not familiar with that. But once we have a better understanding of what this is supposed to look like, it's incredibly practical. And I think it is more intuitively um, a direct connection to my daily life, 168 hours a week than any of the others, right? In fact, we as a church, our controlling statement is a glory statement, that God would be glorified in all things at all costs among all peoples. That is overarching reality. But glory is one of those things that can inform everything about my life, but it's so easily abstract. When I understand the kingdom, it actually encompasses the glory of God and the redemptive work of God and the relational presence of God, but it puts feet to it more readily. So I think it's a helpful thing. The other reason we're going to focus there is because that's what Jesus did. And like three-year-olds, it's always good to answer Jesus, okay? So when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as the crown prince to begin afresh God's rule in the world in a direct way. And he's not just speaking into a vacuum. He's got to actually correct a lot of things that people misunderstand. But there's a lot. The whole scripture talks about this. This is what the people of Israel, it was what their self-identity was. And in fact, it's the right self-identity. The best way to understand the life of Israel is to start, I think, with the book of Deuteronomy. The reason is because they are the original audience for the Bible. If I'm going to understand the Bible, I'm not just asking what happens in this story. I'm asking why did God have somebody write it down and who did he write it down for? So the stuff in Abraham's life happened and it's hundreds of years in the past. 
God says, Moses, write this down for these people. The stuff in Noah's life happened who knows how long before, and it's already done and over. But God says, write this down for these people. The first recipients of scripture were the Deuteronomy generation, a group of people who've grown up in the wilderness, whose parents were released and grandparents from, from Egypt, and God said, I'm going to begin afresh something in the world where my rule expresses more directly and you will be my kingdom. And they failed on their part. And God says, not a problem. We'll hang out here for 40 years. When you guys are gone, we'll start fresh with your kids. That's who we're talking to. That's who the first five books are written to. And the book of Deuteronomy, which is the one that's written directly to them about them, is a king making contract. Technically, for those of you that like it, it's called a suzerain vassal treaty. That may win you some sort of trivia contest, but it doesn't matter what it's called. It's a structure that was actually not uncommon in the ancient world, and God has Moses write in those terms because they'll get it. And here's how it worked. A king would take over in a new land, and there would be this agreement, this covenant, this contract between him and the people that says, here's who I am, here's how we got here, here's what I expect, you do these things, here's the good stuff that's going to come, you don't do these things, here's the bad stuff that's going to come, are we clear? Great, we're going to call the witnesses who are going to witness this contract, we're going to have a special meal to seal the deal, then I'm going to go back to where I actually live all the time, and you're going to stay here, and you're going to live this out. And often accompanying that dynamic, the king would set up an image of himself in this new land to point people back to him and in some way, in their worldview, help him administer his rule. That's what Deuteronomy is structured as, very carefully. In fact, at the very end, in Deuteronomy 33, Moses calls the heavens and the earth as witness to say, we've promised this. Here's the witnesses which is why it's so interesting that when Isaiah is going to take them for ta to task for failing to keep the covenant, the first thing he does is he calls the heavens and the earth as witness. He's lodging a formal complaint. Back at the beginning, this is what you said you would do, and you haven't done that, so now I'm going to do what I said I would do. And you're not going to like that, but I'm just in doing that. Right? And in... Um, Deuteronomy, there's a verse that really makes things explicit. As Moses is giving his final blessing, this is chapter 33, um, he's blessing them, says the Lord came from Sinai, and, and then talks about that whole experience, and then finishes up that little section with these words, thus the Lord became king. Thus the Lord became king. It's about the kingdom of God. And Israel was a problem because they didn't keep their covenant commitments. And so ultimately they were judged. That's why Jesus is coming, because that era of God's rule collapsed, not because God stopped being sovereign, because they weren't faithful. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's saying, all right, this ancient story is beginning a fresh chapter right now. The kingdom of heaven is right here among you because I'm here. Only as he does his work, he does a deeper work because he goes deeper and starts in the heart because that's where the problem is. Are you with me? That's, that, that covers, we don't have time to unpack the whole Old Testament thread, but that actually does 
accommodate very well the entire Old Testament narrative, and it gives context for the rest of the writings. It gives context for the New Testament writings as we are now this kingdom that has begun but is not yet completed and won't be completed until Jesus comes back. We will unpack some of those dynamics in the coming weeks because it'll explain so many things. It will explain, why do I long for the things that I long for? Why do I groan about the things that I groan about? Why do I want to make the world a better place? Why do I have this idea of beauty that is so haunting? Why, why, why? why? Some of those those things are a little twisted because sin has entered into my life. But those are all rooted in this fundamental reality. I was created for beauty the rule of God. I was created for a relationship with him that has certain contours to it. And when I'm not living there, everything's broken. And I long to see that happen. And even in my sinfulness, when I kind of set it up wrong, you can still hear the echoes of here's how God created us. It also explains why things are hard, why bad things happen to good people. Some of those questions we wrestle with. Right? We, will, we will look at things that help us with that in the coming weeks. Right now, I just want to expand on the idea of what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. Right? God's rule, that's still pretty broad. So if you want to turn over to Genesis chapter 1, we'll look at the very first expression. Remember, God's talking to the Deuteronomy generation through Moses. The book of Deuteronomy itself is their contract. Exodus and Leviticus give them the details that some of them would have remembered and some of them would have heard as family stories about how God actually did the same thing with their parents and grandparents and they failed and how there was consequence to that and that's largely what Numbers focuses on. So there's Exodus through Deuteronomy. What's Genesis? Genesis is the foundation for it all. Genesis is the foundation that says, here's what it's supposed to look like. Here's the things you need to know and how we got to where we are, what you need to do. And it's as relevant for us as it was for them. Because the foundational stones are the same, even though the specifics of what God is doing with his people move around a little bit. The church isn't Israel. Right? And neither of us are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But the fundamentals carry over. So what are the fundamentals? Let's just look and we'll read a few verses and then I'll remind you of a few things. You can read this more carefully later if you're not that familiar with the story. Genesis 1 verse 26. God has already created everything else. Now he's going to create people. And it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did you catch that? Let me make them in my image. That's actually part of this kingdom dynamic. And let them have dominion. That's the point. You help me administer my rule. So verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's the foundational story. And then chapter two kind of backs up and says, let me fill in some more details. Here's how I created Adam and Eve and brought them together and gives us the rest of the details. But right there, um, in, in these two chapters, there are three elements that are always foundational 
to what the rule of God is supposed to look like that will shape my life that I must understand and embrace. And I gave those to you earlier, actually. The presence of God, the purpose of God, and the peace of God. The presence of God relationally and empowering. The purpose of God, right? Let me give you a quick pop quiz. What are the commands God gives Adam and Eve? Be fruitful. You got it right. Thank you. I've done that so many times, and typically people say, don't eat the fruit. And then I stop. And then they stop. And then we have this awkward moment because we tend to focus on just kind of the ethics. Like God is just concerned about a particular set of behavior patterns. He is concerned about those things. There's, there's morals to God's purposes. But he actually spends a whole lot more time in this story, and I think it's a whole lot more in his heart, ultimately, on a mission. Right? He gives six commands. The sixth one is the moral command, the test to say, are you really in with me? Are you going to live the kind of life that is necessary, that is committed to me? Don't eat this fruit. But the first five commands are be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, subdue it. These are things that I want you to do because you are here to take this world and do something special with it. So we've got the purpose of God that's both missional and moral. And then the last thing is the peace of God. The peace of God that is enjoyed and extended. The rule of God looks like that. Presence of God is the foundation. Right, a relational presence and an empowering presence. And look at how the story's written. We are in his image to represent him, distinctively just like him, right? When God makes Adam and slows the story down in chapter two, it's very interesting. He says he, well, he gives a chemical formula for a human being, dirt plus the breath of God, right? There, there it is. It's not complicated. Dirt plus the breath of God makes a human being. If you have both of those things, you can make a human being too, but since you don't have the breath of God, I guess you can't. Dr. Frankenstein tried. It didn't work out so well, right? Dirt plus the breath of God. What is that? Why, why is it that? Is God like, oh, I wonder how to make a person go into his shelf and here's the recipe book? I mean, it's like lasagna. No, I had that last night. Uh, do I make a tree? I already did trees. Oh, here we go. It don't, this is a simple recipe. only involves two ingredients, dirt and my breath. I can do that. I mean, that's so ridiculous. We know that's not true. And in fact, there is no handbook. There's no rules. God's making them. It's by his sovereign goodwill that he says, hear how I will make you. Part of you is directly taken from this creation, so you are just as much a part of this as everything else. Part of you is directly connected to me because there is a distinctive relationship, an intimate, personal connection because I'm putting you here to represent me, right? The relationship's at the very center. When God puts them in the Garden of Eden, read it carefully. There's the whole big world. Within the whole big world, there's a smaller land called Eden. And within that smaller land called Eden, there's a little place called the Garden, right? It's just a tiny piece of earth, that God sets up in a very particular way for relationship. The people who are given this book, who are camped on the 
other side of the Jordan River, looking across to go into the promised land, who are saying, what's this all about? We had, had just been given the books of Exodus and Leviticus, which talk about the tabernacle and uses language of here's how the Levites are to serve in the tabernacle, and that's exactly the same language that Moses uses about Adam caring for the garden. Right? There's a deliberate connection there to say, just like the tabernacle is the place for my presence to manifest, the garden was that too, because at the core, at the heart of everything, you need to have this relational connection with me that will then empower you to do everything in the world. If that's missing, nothing's going to work, which is why, by the way, when they violate the moral code and are separated from God, everything collapses. It doesn't work without the absolute center of the rule of God being his relational, empowering presence in my life. That was true in the garden. That was true for the people of Israel, right? God gives them the rules, all the moral rules, and there's a lot of them. And he gives a few, and then he stops. Read Exodus, and you'll see that the last part of the book of Exodus is intricate detail about how to build the tabernacle. Before we go too much further in what you're supposed to do, let's make sure I can be there among you, because that's the center. We gotta have a place where we can connect. There's a point when they rebel, and they're just being sinful, and God, testing Moses, really, growing Moses, says, I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel. Go do it. And Moses says, whoa, time out, God. That ain't happening because we are nothing without you. It is your presence among us that defines us. If you ain't going, I ain't going either because we are not your people if you're not right there among us. It is the relational empowering presence of God that holds everything together. That has to be the absolute center of my life for the rule of God to work. And I was made for the rule of God. I was made for the kingdom of God. That's what my heart beats for. That's what I was fitted for. The Adam and Eve story shows that over and over again. Even after they sin, God comes to talk with them walking in the garden, and it sure sounds an awful lot like, hey, that seems like it was a regular thing. They'd meet in the evening in the garden and talk, and how was your day? What happened? You know, There's this relational, empowering presence of God that's absolutely non-negotiable. Okay, the presence of God. The second piece is the purpose of God. Right, we've already said it's not just moral, it's, it's missional. The moral part, that shows. Don't eat these fruit, right? The missional part, it shows in the mandate. You'd be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, subdue it, right? But it also shows in how God passes the baton to them. Look carefully at, at, at Genesis chapter one and look at how it's, the story's told. On day one, God makes light and dark. On day two, he makes sea and sky. On day three, he makes dry land. On day four, he makes the sun, moon, and stars to fill the light and the dark. On day five, he makes birds and fish to fill the sky and the seas. On day six, he makes animals and people to fill the earth. On day seven, he rests and passes the baton to Adam and Eve. Here's what you do. 
This world that I've created is good. I told you over and over, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But it's wild. It needs to be shaped. I have given you my image. I have given you my very breath. Together, we can dream, and you can now take this place and do extraordinary things with it. Do what I just did. Right? And that baton pass is made even more clear because when, when God does things, he names them, he defines them, he gives them their purpose. So the first thing after Adam's made that we're told about, the extended story, God brings all the animals and Adam starts naming them. Right? He starts defining them. It's all about you do what I did. I took this, I improved it, that's why I've put you here, you take it, you improve it. You are here for a purpose. You have a mission to do something in this world. That doesn't go away with the people of Israel. It gets twisted, it gets complicated, and it gets a particular point put on it because in a fallen world, it's not just how much good can we do in the world because the problem is us. So we've got to do something that changes us. But when God calls the people of Israel to be his kingdom... Not only does he give them the moral rules, he sets them in a place and he says, look, people are going to come and they're going to see how you function. And they're going to look at that and they're going to go, wow, you must have an amazing God. I've not just called you my kingdom. You are a kingdom of priests. Your job is to be the connection point between me and the world. That continues down through their story. When Solomon dedicates the temple, which is the high point of the monarchy of Israel, one of the things he prays is he says, when people come from all over the earth to pray here, hear their prayers. He's assuming they're coming, right? Solomon is the wisest man anywhere. People from all over the earth are coming to hear his wisdom. And he wrote a whole book of wisdom that we're familiar with that says, here's the foundation. The foundation of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. So people from all over the world are saying, what's wisdom? Fear the Lord. This is totally what God intends. Now, because of the brokenness and sin that's entered the world, it's not just go out and make beautiful works of art. Please continue to do that. But there's something else that needs to happen because the greatest ugliness is internal and that needs to be beautified. We need to be rescued. We need to be transformed. When Jesus calls his church... He says, you, you need to live a certain way. And if you want to just do shorthand for that, love God and love each other. Now, there's more details, and we can work on those details ad hoc as we need to, but keep that central. And by the way, live in a way that changes the world. You've come to salvation by grace through faith, and you were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to walk in certain works. I'm called for myself a people zealous for good works. You live out the reality of the, the kingdom dynamics so that you're the poor in spirit and the, those who mourn and those who are peacemakers. You do that, and you will be salt and light in the world. And by the way, my final words to you were go and make disciples of all the nations. There's a mission there's a mission that encompasses all of the good things, but it centers on the gospel because that's the primary issue. The problem's here, right? That continues. Adam and Eve get their version of that. It's very clear. The purpose of God, both his missional and moral purpose, are at the center. Now, the final piece of the kingdom that shows up here is the peace of God. Peace, shalom, 
is, is a strong word that means essentially everything's good. It's all right. It's all as it should be. It's healthy. It's vibrant. It's, it's, it's interwoven in, in this healthy dynamic. It's, it's, it's as it should be. It's not broken, right? So with Adam and Eve, the first thing he does is he blesses them, right? And then he leaves them in this garden that we look at and say, that's the ultimate expression of perfection and beauty and goodness. But then if you turn over and look at the last verse of chapter two, there's a little quirky verse that says a ton. Verse 25 of chapter two says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is not a verse targeted at the purity of sex within marriage, although it reflects that. It's, it's part of this bigger narrative. And it's set against the backdrop in the next chapter when Adam and Eve have sinned and they cover up because they're ashamed. But it's important to notice who we're talking about. Not just Adam and Eve. What is their relationship? Husband and wife. There is no shame in their nakedness whatsoever. The only other person is God. There's no shame in being naked before God, right? You may think you've covered up with your clothes. He can see right through them. There's nothing to hide, right? In Genesis 2, where we've got this story, the peace of God is what reigns, the shalom of God. Everything is in vibrant harmony. Adam and Eve are completely at peace with that. It's not even a thought, They are at peace with each other. They are at peace with God. They are at peace with their environment. They are at peace within. They have literally and metaphorically nothing to hide. And then in Genesis 3, after they've sinned, suddenly they're covering up. But let's do the math again. There's two people, and their relationship is husband and wife. There's still no shame in their nakedness. And the only other person is still God. And the clothes still don't block his vision. There's no shame in their nakedness. Why are they covering up? Because something more fundamental has happened. And they attach that to their nakedness because they're feeling vulnerable. When you feel vulnerable and exposed, it's the most natural thing in the world. That's what they're doing. What's happened is is this total rupture. They've they've lost the shalom. it's, It's been damaged right? The, the presence of God, they're now separated. And the purposes of God, they don't have within them the ability to live those things out. Everything's been knocked off kilter. So this shalom of God is this beautiful thing that got lost. When God talks to the people of Israel, he speaks in terms of Eden images and shalom. Those are the promises if you read, especially Leviticus. When he talks to the church, Jesus is our prince of Peace, right? Glory to God in the house and on earth. Peace. Not just, hey, no more war, but shalom. There's a shalomness that I'm talking about. He is our shalom who has broken down the dividing wall that has kept these peoples separate and antagonistic and is making for himself one new humanity, Ephesians chapter two. That's what's going on. At every stage, the, the kingdom of God is supposed to be God's rule in my life and through my life centered in a relational, empowering, intimate presence that allows me then to live out faithfully with integrity 
his purposes that will change the character of who I am and the conduct of my life and will change my life story so that I am joining with him in his mission. And it's a big picture, it's not a narrow one. I am going to enjoy and extend shalom in the world. The peace of God is where we're going. That's the kingdom. When Jesus comes, it's ultimately about that story. It won't be completed and perfected until he comes again. But he's now given us presence of God in a whole new and empowering way because the spirit of God literally indwells us, right? And we can, even in our brokenness, experience, according to Philippians, peace that passes understanding, shalom that doesn't even make sense because the presence of God and the rule of God in our lives That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, the rest of Genesis deals with what went wrong. And briefly, you know what went wrong. Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, what they did is they rejected the rule of God. They rejected the kingdom. Because they, it wasn't just that you would have some new cognitive understanding of good and evil. It was you wanted to decide for yourself what's good and evil. There's a measure of that, and they're reaching for the fruit. They're not just saying, hey, I wonder what is good, what's evil. It's like, no, I get to pick, which means I'm the king, right? It went from the agenda of the king to the agenda of me. I'm my own king, or I'm my own queen. That's the problem. That's where it broke down. Now, God, at the very beginning, said, I'll fix that. I'm going to send somebody who will crush Satan, who slipped into control of the world that we were supposed to have and has been messing that up ever since because we're not capable of it, right? And so he said, I'll send somebody to fix that and he will crush Satan's head. That happened substantially at the cross, but there's more to come. If you read Romans 16, 20, he promises that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. A clear and deliberate connection to this passage. There's more to come. Satan is still at work in the world. His power has been substantially broken, but he's not off the scene. The story's not yet done. So what do I do? What do you do in the meantime as we seek to live in this world? Genesis lays out the heart posture. And over the next several chapters... There are five contrasts. You'll have to look them up on your own. There's a contrast between Cain and Abel. And Cain comes just transactionally looking for something from God. Abel comes in faith. Then there's a a contrast between Cain and some of the children of Seth, his brother. And it says, in their day, they began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to humble themselves and worship God. Well, Cain is still arrogant. He goes off in his own direction. He builds a city, names it after his son. He is still running amok. The next contrast is between number seven in one genealogy and number seven in another genealogy. That number is significant. It's important. It's set up to say, wait, stop and look at these two because those are the only characters that are talked about. Number seven in the one genealogy is a guy named Lemek who commits murder, gets so excited about it, sets it to music, goes home and celebrates it with his wives, and then he calls God into his sin. He says, God's on my side. The ultimate arrogance Number seven in the other genealogy is a guy named Enoch who walked with God so that God finally just took him to heaven. There's a contrast. The next contrast is between all of humanity 
When God looks from heaven, it says he saw that the entire humanity, all of the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only evil continually. And Noah, who found grace in their eyes, in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah builds an ark, and then later Noah builds an altar. Then the last contrast is between a group of people in chapter 11 who are supposed to spread out in the world. That, that command's still there. And they say, let's not spread out. Let's not be divided. Let's gather together. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower. Let's build a name for ourselves. Let's not do what God wants us to do. Let's be us. God says, that's horrible. And he picks a man out of Mesopotamia named Abram. And he calls him and he says, I will bless you and I will bless the world through you. And Abram builds an altar and worships God. There's this contrast between tower builders and altar builders between people who are on the mission of me and who are on the mission of the king, between those who are just self-important and self-willed and self-determined and those who say the fundamental reality of my life is the rule of God. That's what I need. I humble myself. So here's the question. If I'm not going to ignore Jesus, right, the kingdom of God has to become my mission and my worldview. And the starting question is this. Tomorrow, when I get up, what am I going into my day to do? Am I going to build a tower or am I going to build an altar? And every day when I get up, what choice am I going to make? A tower? My greatness, my plan, my name? or an altar, or humble myself and worship my God and say the defining reality in my life is his presence and his purpose, and I live to experience and to spread his peace. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We're going to take our offering. Lord, I am grateful for your work in my life. You are my king. Sometimes I don't live like that, and I'm sorry. I pray that you'd help me. Pray that your presence would be the defining reality of everything. Your purpose would drive me forward, and your peace would be my experience and what I share with others. That I would do that in partnership with you, and that today, through the rest of this day, tomorrow, when I wake up the next day, I would keep coming back to the place of building an altar for your name, not a tower for mine. Pray that for all of us. As we give these gifts, Lord, this offering, I pray that it wouldn't just be money that we hand over, but it'd be an expression of a life oriented towards building altars for you. We need your help. Spirit, we are still broken people. So would you help and empower us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.